Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. and I will be reading from Luke 1, chapters 5 through 17. Um, At the end, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. (laughs) And you guys will respond, thanks be to God. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord of her people prepared. This is the word of the Lord. today. I'm excited about the message that the Lord has uh, been speaking to me through uh, this passage in Luke. If you have a Bible, um, go ahead and pull it out. If you've got a Bible on your phone, you can use that. Whatever you have, I want you to be able to follow along uh, with me today. And we uh, are going to learn about John the Baptist. The Christmas story The story of Jesus coming into the world actually begins with John the Baptist. You need to know this guy. Um, Jesus said this about him in Matthew 11, 11. He said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He's a big deal. Um, Jesus is saying that John the Baptist was greater than, than Moses than Elijah, than than David. I mean, you pick any number of Old Testament characters. This guy is significant. John the Baptist is, after Jesus, the most theologically significant character of the Gospels. And so we need to wrap our heads around who he is and what he did. Why did he come? Why, Why did we need this guy? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. 
But, you know, it's, it's, it's a good question. It's a fair question. These are the kinds of questions you should ask when you read the Bible. Why did this guy need to come? I mean, Jesus is coming, after all. Couldn't he have just done it himself? Why John the Baptist? What was so needed about his ministry? Um, so this is a very significant character. He, um, as we read in our passage this morning, his birth is, is um, announced by an angel. And um, maybe you caught this. Uh, he, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We don't know any other characters in, in the Bible like that. Um, so, so he is, is incredibly unique, um, incredibly integral to understanding the Gospels, and, and he is the beginning of the Christmas story. Um, so John did what he came to do. I need to say that from the outset. He accomplished his mission. He was successful. Um, today, what we're going to do, the way I'm going to break up my sermon is, um, the first part of the sermon, I'm going to just tell you some things about John. I, I want you to be familiar with who this guy is. Maybe some things that you haven't heard before um, or thought about before. Then the second part of my sermon, I, I want you to gain an understanding of John's mission. What it was that he um, came to accomplish and, and then how he did that. So we're going to think about his preaching and, um, in particular and, and learn how he accomplished his mission. And then finally, we'll just look at what does this mean for us? How does this all come to bear on our lives? What do we do with John and his message? Um, and what we're going to see is that just as in the days of John the Baptist, we have a vital role to play in preparing our hearts before a great work of God can take place. Um, so pray with me and, uh, and we'll, we'll jump right into it. Father in heaven, God, I thank you so much for this church, for um, the opportunity that we have today to in, in whatever ways are needed in, in the many lives in this room, to turn back to you completely with all of ourselves and, and then to experience what it is that you long to do in each one of our lives, in our families, in our uh, workplaces, through us. God, would you... Uh, would you do what it is that, that needs to be done, would you just lay your hand upon this room right now? Give us a reverence, God, for who you are and for your word. Lord, I pray that there would be a joyful seriousness about what it means to follow you and, and that we would, we would take your word very seriously today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in 2009, um, I told several stories about when I was a firefighter. I don't know why all my stories come from them, but um, I just started that job. And, uh, and about, I don't know, eight, nine months into it, kind of had this realization that I'd been drifting from the Lord. 
that I had been really distracted, that um, I had a new schedule, a new routine. I was waking up a lot earlier um, than I had been used to. My quiet time, I didn't spend time in the Word every day, or if I did, it was very rushed. Or, um, and, and it had an effect on me. And, and, I, and I had this moment of realization, this awakening that I had drifted uh, from the Lord and didn't realize that it was happening. And um, around that same time, I read a book that impacted me greatly called Desiring God. It opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I began to just do the, the work of returning to the Lord. And um, the very practical things that that, that meant, that meant um, figuring out how I was going to spend time in God's Word, that, that I needed that, that I couldn't live without that. It, it meant that I needed to prioritize God in, in, in so many different ways, that I needed to lead in my home. And that resulted in a time of great renewal and refreshing in my life. Um, and I want to encourage you this morning that this Christmas season could be that for you. It could be a time when you could just go through the motions. You could just, you know, enjoy the, the, the trappings of Christmas, the cookies and the carols and the presents and the, you know, Christmas movies. And then Christmas will come and go and you'll be no different afterward. Or, or you could turn your gaze upon the Lord. You could, you could turn your whole life to Him in, in fresh ways. And I'm talking to you as a Christian. You could turn your whole life to Him in, in new ways, in, in fresh surrender and experience a, a renewal with God like you've never had before. And that's my prayer. That's what, I, that's what I'm praying that this sermon would be the catalyst for in your life. So, um, let's get to it. Who was John the Baptist? First of all, John the Baptist was a prophecy fulfilled. Um, he was a prophecy fulfilled. So, at the end of the Old Testament, you, you have this book called Malachi. It's the last book before the New Testament. And and in, in Malachi, in chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this, this, this person who's going to come before God himself, who's going to prepare the way, and then at the end of Malachi, the last words that God speaks before a 400-year silence leading up to Jesus coming, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then silence. 400 years of silence. And presumably, um, devout Jewish people would have been familiar with that final prophetic 
word. And, and then nothing for 400 years. And, and then this man, this, this priest, Zechariah, is, is in the temple, and he receives a visitation from an angel who, who tells him that he's going to have a, a very special child who's going to be great before the Lord, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's going to go before God himself in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of fathers to the children. And, and probably Zechariah heard that and, and he thought back to the last thing that the Lord had spoken 400 years before John the Baptist was a fulfillment of prophecy. He'd been prophesied even as far back as in the book of Isaiah. So that's the first thing that I want you to see. God had planned this long ago. The next thing I want you to see is that he's also an answer to prayer. So in, in verse 13, it says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. You see that? Your prayer has been heard. Well, which one was it? Was it a prophecy that was fulfilled, or was it a prayer that was answered? It was both. It was both. And this is what I, I want you to see. <laughs> um, well, I want you to see two things. One thing is that I think Zechariah had stopped praying this prayer. I don't think he was still praying. The reason is because he doesn't even believe it's going to happen when the angel tells him. If an angel tells you that something's going to happen and you don't believe that it's going to happen, you're probably not praying that prayer anymore. I think that he and his wife could probably passionately pray this prayer for years, a number of years, and then it came to the point where they, they felt like, well, it's, it's medically impossible for us to have kids. And they stopped praying. And that may have been a number of years before this point. And so, I say that just to encourage you, God can still answer prayers that you've stopped praying. But the other thing I, I want you to see is that uh, God did ordain that this would happen long before, but he also used Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers. And the point is this, that you should pray for things that you absolutely believe God wants to do and will do, because he uses the prayers of his saints to accomplish the things that he absolutely wants to do on the earth. And so was it that he was prophesied long ago? Yes. Was it that they prayed and he answered their prayer? Yes. Next thing I want you to see is that John was a, a, a man who was set apart. Look at verse 15. It says, uh, He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. What's up with that? Well, um, it, it, it probably means that he was a Nazarite, that, that he went um, his whole life under a Nazarite vow, which, which included a few different things. You, you weren't supposed to touch any dead uh, animals, any dead bodies, that you weren't to drink any wine or strong drink, not because wine was considered bad, but because this was a way of setting yourself apart. It was a vow of consecration to God. And, and that's who John was. John was set apart. He was different. Um, we read, if you flip over to the end, toward the end, yeah, the very last verse of 
of this chapter in Luke. Um, it, it says the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. Okay, so what does that mean? He grew up in the wild. This guy, this guy grew up in the wild. I mean, he was like physically set apart. Right? And, and why was that? Well, I think it's because God wanted John. John, he needed John to be holy. He needed John to be different. Intentionally different. To be strange. And he was strange. We read elsewhere that he wore camel's hair and he ate grasshoppers. And, and uh, this guy was different. And, and I want to point that out because I think that there's a lie that, that we can easily believe that we need to be like the culture in order to reach the culture. But that's just not true. There's a bunch of kids in this room. I want you to hear this and I want the parents of your kids to hear this. You do not need to be like the world to impact the world. In fact... According to God's word, the more different you look than the world, the more likely you are to have a big impact on it. So don't believe that you have to be like the world in order to reach the world. I think what it means for us is that we need to be careful how we're being shaped into the mold. That Listen, this is happening for all of us. Nobody is immune to this. We are all being shaped by our culture. We're shaped in the ways that we think. But we've got to be really careful and we've got to be really vigilant to counteract that. We're being shaped by the media that we consume. What are you consuming? By the stuff you're listening to, watching, conversations you're having? Are you being shaped more by God's word, by his truth, or by the world around you? Let's embrace being different. Let's do that for the sake of the world. Because we love the world and we want to impact the world. How did he do it? How did John do it? Here's the next thing I want us to see about John. John was a reformer of families. This is really central to the prophecy about him and then what the angel says about him. Malachi 4.6 again says, He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, in that prophecy, there's not a whole lot said about him. There's something said about him being Elijah. And then, and then this, not a lot said. So this is important. And the angel who delivers this message to Zechariah brings it back up. This is really important. So what is, what is this getting at? It's, it's telling us that John's, part of John's goal was, he was a wake-up call to fathers. And was, as a result, families were changed. He came to turn fathers back to their God-given responsibility of leading in the home. When men drift from their God-given roles of leadership, beginning in the home, society begins to crumble. We've seen that play out in our day. As go the men, so goes the culture. So one of the main things that John the Baptist came to do was to awaken fathers to their God-given role of leadership in the home. God used John to do this, to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, 
to start taking responsibility for training up their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. This went all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, to the Shema, that, that children are to grow up in an atmosphere saturated by the Word of God. It is to be talked about when you're sitting, when you're standing, when you're walking on the road, when you're going to bed at night, that it's to be saturating your home. Men who drift from the path of faithfulness to the Lord also drift from leading in their homes. I know this from personal experience. And men who turn back to the Lord turn back to the responsibility of leading in their homes. And that gives us a little bit more insight into who this guy was and what he was about. Now, what was his real, his, his main mission? That's what I want to get, get to next. What was his mission? What did he preach? John the Baptist was God's man for a crucial mission arguably the most important mission that anyone would be given in all of world history other than Jesus. He wasn't just a placeholder in the story. He's not just a flash in the pan. This guy matters. His mission matters very, very much. At the very end of the passage, Luke puts it this way, at the passage that we read today. Well, in verse 16, he will turn... He's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. We're going to get to that. What's that talking about? And then the last, the last thing, phrase in verse 17, he's doing it to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's, that's his mission. That's his crucial mission. Again, in Luke chapter 3, a couple of pages over, verse 4 it says, um, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's, that's the quote from Isaiah 600 years before this. That this is a guy who's going to, to cry out, prepare yourself for the Lord. Make yourself ready. His job was to lay the groundwork for, for Jesus' ministry and then pass the baton to Jesus. As, as John's ministry is coming to an end, he, he says things like that he must increase and I must decrease. And he also says, as, as Jesus walks by, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is his role. Prepare the groundwork and then pass the baton. Here he is. He's coming. I want you to don't miss him. Make sure you're ready for him. Don't miss what God is doing. That's, that's essentially what he's, what he's supposed to do. That's what John's supposed to do. And Jesus comes. He proclaims the kingdom to, to people. He says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near. And, and Jesus does this work of liberating people from the domain of darkness and rescuing them and bringing them into his kingdom, the kingdom of light. Jesus came to be the sacrificial lamb on the altar of the cross to take away the sins of everyone who would trust in him. 
And John's message was, get ready for this. Get ready. There's something that you've got to do to be prepared. Prepare yourself for what God's about to do or you'll miss it. Why was this so important? Why was John necessary? Because before John came, people were not ready for Jesus. They were not prepared to trust him or his teaching. I imagine that after 400 years of silence, people were, were going through the motions, many people. Not everyone. You had your Zechariah and Elizabeths, right? But that many, many people were just going through the religious motions asleep. Asleep. And they needed someone to come and wake them and rouse them to prepare them to trust Jesus. Certainly God was about to do his greatest work in human history through Jesus. And he was ready and willing to transform countless lives, but that could not happen until they were awakened. If they didn't prepare themselves, their hearts would be too hard to be impacted by Jesus. Think about it. This is why I know this. Think about it. Who didn't listen to the message of John the Baptist? If you know the, the story of the Gospels, it was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious rulers. They rejected him. And guess who didn't receive Jesus? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious rulers. They weren't ready. Their hearts were too hard. They couldn't be impacted by God himself in the flesh. But many did listen to John, and after hearing his message, many people were ready to be impacted by Jesus. Many people did receive Jesus. They believed in him, and they followed him. So how did John get people ready so that Jesus could have the impact that he was meant to have on their lives? He taught them about repentance. He taught them about repentance. So if you got your Bible, flip over to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is Luke's summary of John the Baptist's ministry. And I love Luke's account of this because he actually gives us some, some snippets of what he taught. What was, it, what was it that people went out to hear when, when they went out to hear John? What did they hear him teaching? And, and it, it, he summarizes it in verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is repentance? Repentance is turning away from sin and returning with all our heart to God. It's changing our thinking, changing our habits, and then ultimately our behavior is changed. One commentator called repentance the first word of the gospel. Jesus preached repentance. He, 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 he came out. The, the summary of his preaching was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Charles Spurgeon said that repentance is the twin sister to faith. It's not something other than faith. It's, it's inseparable from it, connected to it. Um, 
There's no salvation where there is no repentance because true faith sees Jesus as who he is, as glorious, and, they, and it turns to him to follow him. Pastor and commentator David Guzik is helpful here. He says, repentance must never be thought of as something we must do before we can come back to God. Repentance describes the very act of coming to God. He goes on, he says, you can't turn towards God without turning from the things he is against. There's so much truth in that. You can't turn towards God without turning away from something else. And, and that's what repentance is. It's not some precursor to coming to God. It's not clean your life up so that then God can work with you. That's not what repentance is. Please don't hear me saying that. Repentance is the very act of turning to God. It's, it's, it is what it looks like to turn to Him. And so repentance and faith are inseparable. Repentance is also an ongoing work. It's not something we do once when we become a Christian and then move on from that. It's something that we do continually. Um, you, you'll see this in, in John's preaching. Look at Luke chapter 3. In the beginning of verse 8, he says this, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. John's saying, this is a thing that you're going to need to keep on doing. <laughs> you're going to need to keep on living this out. Keeping with repentance. It's not a one-time thing. And then he goes on in that same verse, he says, And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John, he does a great job of helping people to repent, not only from those obvious sins that they're aware of, but also helping them to repent of dead religion. Again, 400 years of silence. People have probably become a bit mechanical in what they're doing, going through the motions. And he's helping them to see, look, dead religion is not going to save you. What you need is a vibrant relationship with God. Don't, don't, don't presume to say, because we attended church our whole lives, then we were good. Don't presume to say to yourself, because I serve even, in, in this way at the church, or I was, I was involved in this or that thing, or I did these things for God. Don't presume to say that because of that, you are right with the Lord. This is about a relationship. It's about a vibrant relationship with God. And you, you can't have that without repentance. Period. You can't have a relationship with God unless you turn to Him. And the Bible says that we are all naturally inclined to be turned away, we, we have to, we've got to turn to him in order to have a relationship. So, so John is waking them up from their dead religion. He's saying, he's saying, keep, keep bearing fruit in repentance. Don't presume that your religion will save you. And his preaching cuts to the heart and, and, and many who heard his message, they had their consciences Awakened. That's what it feels like when you begin to feel like, oh, 
I think that this message is speaking to me. I think there's something I got to do about it. That's a gift. Oh, it's one of the greatest gifts in the world. An awakened conscience. The sudden realization that there are things that God sees that you haven't seen. And he's seen it all along. And there's something that you have to do about it. Their, their consciences were awakened. And what do they, how do they respond? Verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Okay, John, we hear you, man. So tell us what to do. And John, look at what John does. He doesn't give them general advice like just stop sinning and start worshiping God. Well, that's true, yeah. But he gets really, really specific. I love this. This is applied theology. This is how do I actually live out this repentance? So look at verses 11 through 14. He answered them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Notice that he doesn't just say the same thing that he told the crowds. Because different people in different scenarios and different vocations have different issues. Different struggles, different sin. And so what does he say to them? Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Because they had a, a habit of, they would collect more, and that was sort of seen as normal if you're a tax collector. You collect more than you're authorized, and that's like your bonus. He says, stop doing that. Right? And then the soldiers come up to him. And what about us? What shall we do? And he says to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Don't miss this. This is how John accomplished his mission to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. He helped them to repent of specific sin in their lives. He exhorted them to acts of generosity, to integrity in their work, to contentment with their salary. You think, what does that have to do with the coming of the Messiah? Everything. Everything. Because it's when they began to do those things that they were turning to God in faith. That their hearts were softening. That God was coming through the soil of their hearts with a plow getting ready for the harvest. So, what were the results? People repented. Lives were changed in very practical ways. Families were set in order. Fathers turned their hearts to their children and children turned their hearts to their fathers. Disobedient people turned to the wisdom of the just and lived according to God's standard. And as a result, those who repented were prepared to be impacted by Jesus when he began his ministry. Because of their repentance, their hearts were softened to what God was going to do. Their faith was able to grow they were ready for God to do a great work in their lives. So, final section of this sermon. How do we respond to all of that? We need to recognize that this 
Christmas is an opportunity. We, we always have this opportunity. The ball, Christian, the ball's always in your court. Because you don't have to wait for God to be willing to do a great work in your life. The Bible says, if you will draw near to Him, then He will draw near to you. Period. That's, that's what the Bible says. You don't have to wait for Him to be willing. You don't have to pray and ask Him to be willing to do a great work. He is willing to do a great work. And the ball's in our court. And this Christmas season, that is true. This Christmas season, I hope to present to you that this is an opportunity for us to experience a great move of God. A, a, a refreshing work from God. Acts 3, 19 and 20 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance leads to refreshing. And many of you in this room need a season of spiritual refreshing. Many of you. And so, repentance is the way. It is the way to refreshing some of you, however, are, you're not a Christian yet. You're here and you're exploring, you're seeking. A friend invited you or a spouse, you're checking things out. And if, if that's you, then what do you do? Well, the Bible would say the same thing to you. To, to repent. To turn away from doing life your way, from, from embracing your Rebellion against God, turn away from that and turn toward God. And that is what faith looks like. Turn toward Him and yield to Him. Let Him lead you and direct your life. Put your trust in Him. Believe in Him. That's what you do. How, what, what, why does that accomplish something? Well, because Jesus came to the earth and He didn't stay a baby. He grew into a man, and his entire life was one obedience after another. Perfect obedience to God. He lived the life that none of us can live, but we should have. And then he went to the cross in our place to take our place to die the death that we deserved. He paid the penalty for your sin and mine. That, that's what Jesus did for us. He died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the, from the dead. And, and so, if you trust him, if you will turn from life your way and, and embracing your sin, and you'll turn to him and put your trust in him and in what he has accomplished for you on the cross, the Bible says you will be forgiven of your sins, that your your debt that you owe to God that will be paid. You'll get a clean slate, a brand new life with God. And so, first and foremost, if you haven't done that, then do that. Believe in Him. Repent and turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus.
What about the rest of us? What about those who are Christians? Well, embrace the fact that um, the whole life of a Christian is a life of repentance. The first of, maybe you've heard of Martin Luther's 95 Theses that he nailed to the door in Wittenberg. Wittenberg. <laughs> you know what his first thesis said? It said this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was foundational to the Reformation. That idea was foundational to the Protestant Reformation. That our entire lives are to be one of repentance. Not confession to a priest. Confession to God, renouncing your sin, turning away from it, and turning to God in faith. That's, that's what's before all of us as Christians. The famous Puritan John Owen put it this way in the mortification of sin. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And what he's getting at, what he gets at in that book, is that our Christian life depends upon our fight against sin. And if we give up on that fight, sin will overtake and destroy us. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is the doctrine that we must, that all Christians will and must fight our sin to the last. That's what's before us. And so all of life will be one of repentance. Every time we do that, we will experience times of refreshing from the Lord. So how do we get there? I just want to break it down to a few very practical steps. Um, number one, prayerfully examine your life in the light of Scripture. Maybe, maybe, though, you already know. Maybe you already know the things that God's been putting His finger on that you've been ignoring. Deal with those. Repent of those things. But maybe you don't know, and, and that's where you need to start here. Prayerfully examine your life in the light of Scripture. As you study the Bible, and your life doesn't align with the Bible, that's where repentance is needed. That's what repentance is. It's coming into alignment with God, what He says in His Word. We would all do well to heed Paul's charge to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20.28. 20, when he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourself. It, in other words, don't just, don't just pay no attention to how you're living your life, to the habits that, that you're living in, to the, to the thoughts that you're thinking, to the words that you're saying, to the ways that you're spending your time, to the things that you're consuming. Don't, don't just pay no attention. No, pay careful attention. And, and ask yourself, is my life lining up with God's word? And if it isn't, then what, what do I need to do? I need to, I need to do something about that, right? So prayerfully examine your life. Ask God to show you the things in your life that he sees that you haven't been seeing. And these aren't just sins of commission. There are also sins of omission, right? It's... it's it's easy to think like sins are just things you do bad. But sins are also ways that we completely neglect the, the good things that God has called us to. So are you doing what God's called you to? Are you leading yourself? Are you living a self-controlled life? 
Are you leading in your home? Are you working hard at your job with integrity? Are you raising your kids in the fear and instruction of the Lord? Are you serving those around you? Are you putting God first and living your life for Him? There are also those sins of commission that we've got to fight against, right? That, that we oftentimes struggle with for so long that we finally just throw in the towel and say, well, it's just not going to happen. Sins of lust, complaining, laziness, worry, gluttony, self-pity, pride. Don't throw in the towel. Fight like your life depends on it. Because it does. Be killing sinner, it will kill you. Secondly, confess and renounce specific sin that he shows you and then believe the gospel. As God has shows you things, and he will, take the time to confess each specific sin to the Lord. Think back to John the Baptist and that very, these very specific things that he called people to do in repentance. Uh, so, so confess those specific things to the Lord and then abandon it. Be done with it. Walk away from it. And then agree with God about it. That's part of confession. Agree with Him about it. Don't keep loving your sin. We, we love our sin. That's why we commit it. So we have to learn to hate our sin. Do not call what is good evil or what is evil good. Along with this, I would say, pray for godly grief over your sin. That's a, a phrase that Paul uses in, in 2 Corinthians 7. That godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief or godly sorrow is the wellspring of true and lasting repentance. So pray for real anguish over the sin that enslaves you. That's, that's really, I, I know that's really hard to make yourself do. Who wants to feel terrible? <laughs> but this is what the Bible says, is that you should have anguish, you should have godly sorrow over sins that enslave you. I'm not talking about sin that springs up here and there. We're all dealing with that. I'm talking about an enslaving sin in your life, a pattern of sin in your life. Pray that God would give you a broken heart over that so that you can get free. If you believe the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then when, when you do that, when you, when you turn away from your sin, when you, when you leave it behind, then you can have confidence that God has provided a covering for your sin, that he's done away with your sin by the blood shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. Thirdly, make an action plan and follow through. Oftentimes we, we have intentions of repentance and then we go right back to doing what we were doing before. Or right back to not doing what we were not doing. <laughs> so we need to make a plan and follow through. Remember that repentance always results in a change in your life, right? It's share with the people who have none. It's, it's work in your workplace with integrity. It's contentment. It's, it's always resulting in actual change. So make a real plan of change and follow through with it. And then 
Finally, enjoy times of refreshing from the Lord. That's the final step. Once you have repented of all known sin in your life, sit back and watch as God begins to work in new and exciting ways in you and through you. Here's one way that the scriptures put it in 2 Timothy 2, 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. God does the good work in you and through you. But he calls us to turn from our sin to him so that that work can happen. And that's what John the Baptist preached. And it's what we still need to hear today. If God would do a great work in our lives. This Christmas, as we think about the message of John the Baptist, remember this, Jesus has come. But there is yet more that he is willing to do in the world. If we do not stand in his way. And so... The charge is this, church. Let's roll up our sleeves and do the hard work of real repentance and prepare ourselves for God to do work in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult thing. We have the flesh fighting against us and the world fighting against us and all the distractions that are out there, Lord. But, but I pray that there would be such a, an excitement welling up inside of us about what, what you might do, the times of refreshing that might come, the growth that might result, the transformation that could happen if we would turn to you with all of our hearts in submission to you and, and let you do the work you long to do this Christmas season. Pray it in Jesus' name.